404, chapters 3 and 4 of The Count of Monte Cristo. Book talk begins at 1540. Welcome to Craftlit. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 404, Got Clocked. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. I hope you are well. All is well here. I had a fabulous time on YouTube with Dawn and Erica, and I'll be able to play that for you shortly. And I have a gazillion really cool links for you from both the YouTube live stream, but also from the stuff we're going to find out about today before we listen to our chapters. Today, I'm bringing you chapters three and four, mostly because I just can't stand to not bring you three and four. Uh, the, the chapters are great, and we will have some very important people and a very important dynamic explained to us today. So I didn't really want to break up the audio, but it also means that going to be a long podcast. So I am going to move along right now and play you our crafty chat from the YouTube live stream on Tuesday. And if you want to join in and come and visit, you can do so at 1030 Pacific, noon 30 Central, and 130 Eastern. And for more times, you will need to use the time zone calculator on the show notes at craftlit.com slash Four oh four, And if you show up to the YouTube live stream, you can ask questions or make comments or whatever, because Erica is keeping an eye on the stream while we all share what we're making. It's really, really nice to be able to see what people are working on instead of just hearing about it. You know, there's only so many words you can come up with that say russet or that kind of color beyond saying russet. <laughs> <laughs> and Don held up some yarn and some fiber that was just so gorgeous, all from Briar Rose. So here we go with a little crafty chat from Don and Erica and me and comments from our listeners. So, all right. So I am now sharing. Oh, you did it. I am sharing a screen. <laughs> so uh, this is your cookbook that you took this out of. Yes, that the reason the whole reason I bought that cookbook is because I have a friend who's from New Orleans and she made this jambalaya and um it was delicious and I was like you have to share your recipe for jambalaya with me and she's like well then you have to buy the cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a great cookbook. It really is. If you like creole or cajun cooking, it's fantastic. We make yeah. a lot of things out of there. Yes, with chicken and andouille, and we add tomatoes. I guess Mm. tomatoes are controversial in jambalaya. Some people say yes, some people say no. Really? We did tomatoes. Yeah. Tomatoes are controversial? In jambalaya. (laughs) Who knew? All those controversial fruits. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for not saying that ketchup is a vegetable. (laughs) 
I appreciate that. It's really simple and it's easy to make a huge batch of it in the afternoon and then you have it for dinner throughout mm -hmm. the week. It's really nice. We use it a lot. I like that. And I also really like blood oranges. <laughs> so you said that this particular crop that you've got access to is super crazy good. Yeah, and it's just, they're the ones from Trader Joe's, so I would assume other people have access to them as well. But they are just this crazy, they're this crazy color. They're almost purpley red, and yeah. they taste like Jolly Ranchers. <laughs> what do you what do you use your blood oranges for? We just eat them. We just cut them in slices and eat them a lot. Um, but marmalade, they make stunning marmalade. Oh, I yeah, because that. you get the you get the um, contrast of the orange rind with the ruby red color. It's beautiful. And if you want a marmalade recipe, Alton Brown's marmalade recipe is the best. Really, Alton Brown's yes. everything is the oh, best. It's it true. is. It's so easy and it is perfect every single time. Erica, did you have any food to add to the food porn? I made something awesome last night. It looked beautiful. It was a little underdone, but it was gorgeous anyway. The big, huge hunk of pork. But hopefully next time I'll have some homemade sausage or something to show you. You do homemade sausage? And Andrew does homemade sausage. Um, for the listeners, both Heather and I are married to men named Andrew, but not the same man. Um, <laughs> it's good to distinguish the two. It actually, he, uh, his most recent effort was he did, he cold smoked a big hunk of cheddar cheese. Whoa. And, and uh, yeah, you can smoke without heat. It was so good. I, I, it's his secret. I don't know. But he had, he got a special cold, cold smoking attachment for his smoker for his birthday. And he broke it in this past week with this just giant hunk of cheddar cheese. I'm I'm so sorry. That has to be just such such a difficult time for you to have to live through. Before I forget, Tammy Burke is frantically waving her hand, saying hello, hello, hello. Yay! Um, hi, hi, Tammy. And, and Miss Thursday Adams agrees that smoking cheese is good fun. Does she it have is. a cold smoker? Uh, Thursday does not have a smoker. She doesn't now that she lives in the UK. Oh. oh. Well, you know there are trade-offs. Right. Right. Well, actually, I'm glad she's here because I got an email today and I'm going to share the screen again because this blew my mind. I got a freak email out of the blue from a guy named Paul. I mean, really out of the blue. He just said, hey, I think your readers might be interested in this. And I thought, hmm, how did you find me? And he he gave me this link and he said, this is an interactive map. And I said, oh, OK, well. So it's got the history of wool spinning in Dublin. And then you go north and hand weaving. Oh. And it goes through it goes through all these fabulous textiles in Ireland with these gorgeous pictures. Actually, I was like, well, there has to be something going on here. He is from Murphy of Ireland. He sent a link to their nightshirt page. And I think this is how he found me because we bought a nightshirt with, with the little cap. We got a little, you know, little cap for the boy and a little nightshirt. Oh, aren't those adorable? And so he's, I wrote back to him and said, uh, I'm pretty confident that the listeners are going to be really happy because I can live stream it now and show everybody what this thing awesome. is. So 
You people who are listening and not watching are missing out. This is some ridiculous looking lace. I know. I'm going to a good way. I'm going to go ahead and, and post the, the link to this in the show notes so people can can click on Ooh, it. I like that one. Play around themselves. Isn't that beautiful? And this is the, the Poor Claire Nuns in Ken Marin County Cary, which is, I think, where my stepmom is from. So, Dawn. Yes. Do you have any artistic craftiness to share? <laughs> I was waiting for you to ask. So you had told me when you proposed this whole thing that because people want to know how you're in back of the chair stash is coming, right? <laughs> so after we talked about all the Briar Rose last week, I was like, I should just pull out all my Briar Rose projects and see <laughs> none of them were behind the chair, but there are a lot of them. <laughs> At this point, everything became incredibly visual. So even if you weren't able to see it live, I have put links to specific points in the YouTube video from thecraftlit.com slash 404 show notes so that you can just jump right there and see the gorgeousness that Dawn is creating with her briar rose. And then this is a triangular shawl of some type that I don't even remember what the pattern is anymore, so I don't know how I'm going to finish it. <laughs> but it's pretty. It's very pretty, and it's multiple colors of Chris's yarn. <laughs> so I'll have to figure it out eventually. You know what's interesting is you have a whole lot of those kind of rusts and yellows <laughs> and, and greens. colors, yeah. but you're wearing all of the ocean colors. Yeah, well, this, yeah, Noro. That's kind of which, the way I go with Noro. Today must be Noro day. I'm wearing Noro too. <gasps> oh, you have Noro on too. Um, so I don't know uh, if you guys listen to Brass Needles, but every February, Miss um, Calendar does Finishuary, where you finish up, you take projects that were started before February 1st and you finish them before March 1st, or at least make really good progress on them. And there's prizes and whatever. And, since I'm between work projects, I uh, decided to do that. So cool. um, I've pulled out my, my poor, lonely socks from last February that clearly are far from being done. But they taught me that if I'm doing a plain yes. pattern, I need interesting yarn. If I'm doing plain yarn, I need an interesting pattern. If I do plain vanilla yarn and plain vanilla pattern, I want to poke my eyeballs out. Mm-hmm. So yes. one day these will go to the person they're for. And then I have this Entrelac scarf that I started in 2014. Ooh. Speaking of Noro, <gasps> all the crazy colors. Noro is perfect for Entrelac. It's, yes, it is. So this is Korean sock, which... You know, I wouldn't use for socks because it's not super wash and it's a little delicate, but um, it sure is great for this. That's awesome. And then, then the blanket that I gave my daughter for Christmas 2014 and didn't start until January 2016. As you can see, I have a long way to go. Wow. And it's very wide. She, of course, wanted the, it comes in three sizes, and of course, she wanted the biggest size, which is, well, yeah, you know, about five feet wide. So, how much yarn is going to go into that sucker? About a whole bag of Barocco vintage. That wow. better be enough because wow. that's all I'm using. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed that. 
Again, all of the links for anything of import that we talked about are on the show notes at craftlit.com slash 404. And uh, the same links are mirrored over at YouTube as well. And that's craftlit.com slash YouTube. Before we head right into our book talk, I wanted to share a little thing about Paris with you. This is the Craft Lit 2016 tour to Paris, and Diane has done an incredible job planning all of the coolness that we are going to experience there, and you are invited. I'm going to be sharing little tiny bits and pieces of things that are going to happen on the trip. That means two things. One, if it entices you and makes you think, hmm, that sounds like something I'd like to do, then please, please, please follow the link in the show notes. In the sidebar, there's a little picture of the Eiffel Tower. You can click on that, or you can call 1-800-826-2266. And Diane or anyone there is going to be able to answer all of your questions. It's a low deposit that is fully refundable up until, I think, June or July. So if you want to reserve your space, do it now, because what happened last time was the spaces started to fill up really, really fast as soon as I started talking about the tour on the show. And that's what I'm doing right now. One of the first places that we're going to go in October is to the Ile de la Cité, which is this island in the middle of the Seine River, and there has been something happening on this island since forever, since before recorded history. It's been a hub, and I find that fascinating because islands are kind of tricky to get to if you don't have bridges, but it was also really defensible because it was hard to get to when you didn't have bridges. So it was a, an interesting place for a really long time, but it also happens to be where Notre Dame Cathedral is. And it, what, they started building that in 1100 and something? So <laughs> there have been people people there for a really long time. One end, the western end, has a palace, and it's had that there for, or it's had a palace of some sort there forever. And then the other end was dedicated to religion. So that's the end that has Notre Dame. And before Notre Dame, there was another church. And before the church, there had been a pagan church, temple place. So it's been utilized by just normal day-to-day folks for a really long time. And that's one of the things I love about history in countries where you have history is the layers on top of each other of all the different peoples and practices and traditions that you come across when you start digging down. Well, one of the first things we're going to do on our tour is to walk through the Ile de la Cité and get a chance to look at Notre Dame. Spectacular. So it's beautiful. There are some really incredibly gorgeous pictures, one from the western edge and one from the eastern edge, and I've linked to those from the show notes, because if you've never seen this before, if you've never seen it before when you know what you're looking at, you need to go look at the pictures. Gorgeous. So, I hope you enjoy that, and I hope you can join us in October when we go and visit Paris. Right then, book talk. (sighs) Today, 
we get to see very, very little bit of Edmond Dantes, but we get to see a lot about other people. There are several terms that you may be unfamiliar with. I'm sure that if you live in France, these words are not a surprise to you. But for me, and probably anyone in the States who hasn't traveled to France before, uh, Catalan. The Catalans were a group of people who were originally, well, originally they probably came from somewhere else, but originally, as far as we're concerned, came from northern Spain. So there's a group of them in northern Spain, and then there's this group of them in southern France. And actually, there's even a group that went over to Italy. But these these people uh, tended to stay among themselves and kind of self-sufficient within their own community. And they spoke their own language. And so for our people in Marseille, which you will hear referred to as a commune, and I'll explain that for a, in a moment, uh, for the people in Marseille, the Catalans would have been a, a known quantity They would have been a part of the ecosystem, but not necessarily woven into the ecosystem. Uh, This time, they seem to have been fishermen, mostly. And and that's pretty much all you need to know about them right now. Um, You can imagine, stereotype-wise, that you are going to see uh, Frenchmen think or say that the Catalans have, um, coming from Spain and all, sunshiny and hot and all of that, uh, that they are going to have a a temper and uh, a fiery demeanor and be um, interested in uh, taking revenge against somebody who has done them wrong, you know, like always reaching for your sword kind of thing, and that that would be the stereotype. And it's important to know it's a stereotype. But you're going to hear that coming up today. Then the commune, like I said, you're going to hear Marseille referred to as a commune, and this is basically like calling it a township or a, a, a village council. It was a, an organizational structure for villages and cities and towns in France. So it has nothing to do with 1960s, <laughs> and it has nothing to do with communism, and it has, well, in this case, nothing to do with the commune of, of Paris, the, uh, the one that was actually kind of famous that happened during the French Revolution. So that's all that means. Uh, those of you who are knitters and weavers will be very excited because you will hear a reference to a clocked stocking. For those of you who do not knit or weave, what a clocked stocking was is, um, let's see, you have to visualize this for me. Imagine for a moment that stockings, this would be above the knee stockings, were not made out of anything particularly stretchy. They would have been made out of wool most likely, and cotton if you could get a hold of it, and if you had money, then silk. But they would have been woven, which means they had to be sewn. So if you have one big tube that you make that becomes the the leg, and you can, you know, you can taper that when you're, when you're sewing it, so you could kind of, kind of fit it to a leg, and then you could continue that piece down into uh, the top of the foot. So you'd have one seamless piece running down the front of your leg, front of your calf, onto your foot. And you could manipulate that piece of fabric somewhat to curve in some places around your foot. You could even leave a little strip down the back that you could make a heel flap out of. But the turn of the heel, and then that wonky weird triangle that would appear right where your ankle is and up a little bit in front of the 
above the ankle, that wedge is going to cause you problems. And so what they had to do when they were weaving these stockings, or weaving the, the material to make stockings, and then when they were sewing them together, they had to patch that section, that little weird triangular section, with fabric. Well, people being people, it didn't take long before they started making those things decorative. Um, amazing embroidery would, would go over that area to kind of mask it. Um, there were, uh, I, I came across a couple of pairs of stockings that were modern versions of historical stockings, stockings that people had seen in paintings, and, and they're incredible. Some of them, the clock it like swoops up like a Nike swoop all the way up to the knee and gets really, really thin up at the top, and then has a, you know, a little rosette up at the top where the colors join back up again. So when we hear about clocked stockings today, we will not be hearing about anything quite that fancy, but we will be hearing about a woman's clocked stocking, which means you can see her ankle and part of her leg. So, I don't know. I don't know what that means. I suppose actually it doesn't mean much of anything because we're in Marseille and we're close to the water. And because you're in a Catalan village, you're actually very close to the water and you're surrounded by fishermen. So, mm, maybe it doesn't really mean anything. Maybe. So, the other thing to know about is conscription. As we know from learning about Alexandre Dumas, the military could be a very, very good way to come up in the world. It could work out really well for you if you weren't killed in action. And the problem with that is that you could go and sign up, but if there isn't a war, then you're not making any money. It wasn't like there was a standing army like we have nowadays where you have professional military who... That's what they did. Certainly they had commanding officers who it was their job to kind of keep an eye on things and be prepared and people who advised on issues of defense and things like that. But but for the, the normal guys, the everyday soldiers, if there's no fight and there's nothing to get paid for. So you will hear a reference to what, 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 you're conscripted. And that means if a war starts, you'll be whisked off to battle and then what? So that's, that's all that they're, they're talking about with that section. You'll hear a reference to spinning flax. And because spinning flax is so different from spinning wool or even cotton, I linked to a couple of videos so you can see somebody actually spinning flax because it's cool. Actually, and if I can find one, I'll try and find one. If I can find one of the preparation of the flax along with the spinning, I will link to that too because I got to prepare some flax once and then I had to go and take a nap because it's a lot of work. You will hear a character say ma foi, which is like saying my God or, or by my faith. Um, and it's, it's just something people say and it goes, it goes by quickly, but our reader says it very nicely. And I kept thinking, I don't remember what foi means. So I went and looked it up. And super truly, that is all I think you're going to need before we hop into the chapter. So let's get a move on and listen to David Clark read us The Fabulous, chapters three and four, The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. 
Chapter 3 The Catalans Beyond a bare, weather-worn wall, about a hundred paces from the spot where the two friends sat looking and listening as they drank their wine, was the village of the Catalans. Long ago this mysterious colony quitted Spain and settled on the tongue of land on which it is to this day. Whence it came no one knew, and it spoke an unknown tongue. One of its chiefs, who understood Provençal, begged the Commune of Marseille to give them this bare and barren promontory, where, like the sailors of old, they had run their boats ashore. The request was granted, and three months afterwards, around the twelve or fifteen small vessels which had brought those gypsies of the sea, a small village sprang up. This village, constructed in a singular and picturesque manner, half Moorish, half Spanish, still remains and is inhabited by descendants of the first comers, who speak the language of their fathers. For three or four centuries they have remained upon this small promontory, on which they had settled like a flight of seabirds, without mixing with the Marseillaise population, intermarrying and preserving their original customs, and the costume of their mother country, as they have preserved its language. Our readers will follow us along the only street of this little village, and enter with us one of the houses which is sunburned to the beautiful dead-leaf colour peculiar to the buildings of the country, and within coated with whitewash like a Spanish posada. A young and beautiful girl, with hair as black as jet, her eyes as velvety as the gazelle's, was leaning with her back against the wainscot, rubbing in her slender, delicately moulded fingers a bunch of heath blossoms, the flowers of which she was picking off and strewing on the floor. Her arms bare to the elbow, brown and mottled after those of the Arlesian Venus, moved with a kind of restless impatience, and she tapped the earth with her arched and supple foot, so as to display the pure and full shape of her well-turned leg in its red, cotton, grey and blue clocked stocking. At three paces from her, seated in a chair, which he balanced on two legs, leaning his elbow on an old, worm-eaten table, was a tall young man of twenty or two-and-twenty, who was looking at her with an air in which vexation and uneasiness were mingled. He questioned her with his eyes, but the firm and steady gaze of the young girl controlled his look. Oh, you'll see, Mercedes, said the young man, here is East to come round again. Tell me, is this the moment for a wedding? I have answered you a hundred times, Fernand, and really you must be very stupid to ask me again. Well, repeat it. Repeat it, I beg of you, that I may at last believe it. Tell me for the hundredth time that you refuse my love, which had your mother's sanction. Make me understand once for all that you are trifling with my happiness, that my life or death are nothing to you. Oh, to have dreamed for ten years of being your husband, Mercedes, and to lose that hope, which was the only stay of my existence. At least it was not I who ever encouraged you in that hope, Fernand, replied Mercedes. You cannot reproach me with the slightest coquetry. I have always said to you, I love you as a brother, but do not ask from me more than sisterly affection, for my heart is another's, 
Is not this true, Fernand? Yes, that is very true, Mercedes, replied the young man. Yes, you have been cruelly frank with me, but do you forget that it is among the Catalans a sacred law to intermarry? You mistake, Fernand. It is not a law, but merely a custom. And I pray of you, do not cite this custom in your favour. You are included in the conscription, Fernand, and are only at liberty on sufferance, liable at any moment to be called upon to take up arms. Once a soldier, what would you do with me, a poor orphan, forlorn without fortune, with nothing but a half-ruined hut and a few ragged nets, the miserable inheritance left by my father to my mother, and by my mother to me? She has been dead a year, and you know, Fernand, I have subsisted almost entirely on public charity. Sometimes you pretend I am useful to you, and that is an excuse to share with me the produce of your fishing, and I accept it, Fernand, because you are the son of my father's brother, because we were brought up together, and still more because it would give you so much pain if I refuse. But I feel very deeply that this fish which I go and sell, and with the produce of which I buy the flax I spin, I feel very keenly, Fernand, that this is charity. And if it were, Mercedes, poor and lone as you are, you suit me as well as the daughter of the first shipowner, or the richest banker of Marseille. Or do you such as we desire but a good wife and a careful housekeeper, and where can I look for these better than in you? Fernand, answered Mercedes, shaking her head, a woman becomes a bad manager, and who shall say she will remain an honest woman when she loves another man better than her husband? Rest content with my friendship, for I say once more, that is all I can promise, and I will promise no more than I can bestow. I understand, replied Fernand. You can endure your own wretchedness patiently, but you are afraid to share mine. Well, Mercedes, beloved by you, I would attempt fortune. You would bring me good luck, and I should become rich. I could extend my occupation as a fisherman, might get a place as clerk in a warehouse, and become in time a dealer myself. You could do no such thing, Fernand. You are a soldier, and if you remain at the Catalans, it is because there is no war. So remain a fisherman, and contented with my friendship, as I cannot give you more. Well, I will do better, Mercedes. I will be a sailor, instead of the costume of our fathers which you despise. I will wear a varnished hat, a striped shirt, and a blue jacket with an anchor on the buttons. Would not that dress please you? What do you mean? asked Mercedes, with an angry glance. What do you mean? I do not understand you. I mean, Mercedes, that you are thus harsh and cruel with me, because you are expecting someone who is thus attired. But perhaps he whom you await is inconstant, or if he is not... The sea is so to him. Fernand, cried Mercedes, I believed you were good-hearted, 
and I was mistaken. Fernand, you are a wicked to call your aid jealousy and the anger of God. Yes, I will not deny it. I do await and I do love of him of who you speak, and if he does not return, instead of accusing him of the inconstancy which you insinuate, I will tell you that he died loving me and me only. The young girl made a gesture of rage. I understand you, Fernand. You would be revenged on him because I do not love you. You would cross your Catalan knife with his dirk. What end would that answer? To lose you my friendship if he were conquered and see that friendship changed into hate if you were victor. Believe me, to seek a quarrel with a man is a bad method of pleasing the woman who loves the man. No, Fernand, you will not thus give way to evil thoughts. Unable to have me for your wife, you will content yourself with having me for your friend and sister. And besides, she added, her eyes troubled and moistened with tears, Wait, wait, Fernand, you said just now that the sea was treacherous, and he has been gone for four months, and during those four months there have been some terrible storms. Fernand made no reply, nor did he attempt to check the tears which flowed down the cheeks of Mercedes. Although for each of these tears he would have shed his heart's blood, but these tears flowed for another. He arose, paced a while up and down the hut, and then suddenly stopping before Mercedes, with his eyes glowing and his hands clenched. I say, Mercedes, he said, once for all, is this your final determination? I love Edmond Dante, the young girl calmly replied, and none but Edmond shall ever be my husband. And you will always love him? As long as I live. Fernand let fall his head like a defeated man, heaved a sigh that was like a groan, and then suddenly looking her full in the face with clenched teeth and expanded nostrils said, But if he is dead? If he is dead, I shall die too. If he has forgotten you? Mercedes! called a joyous voice from without. Mercedes! Oh! exclaimed the young girl, blushing with delight and fairly leaping in excess of love. You see, he has not forgotten me, for here he is. And rushing towards the door, she opened it, saying, Here, Edmond, here I am. Fernand, pale and trembling, drew back like a traveller at the sight of a serpent, and fell into a chair beside him. Edmond and Mercedes were clasped in each other's arms. The burning Marseille sun, which shot into the room through the open door, covered them with a flood of light. At first they saw nothing around them. Their intense happiness isolated them from all the rest of the world, and they only spoke in broken words, which are the tokens of a joy so extreme that they seem rather the expression of sorrow. Suddenly Edmond saw the gloomy, pale and threatening countenance of Fernand as it was defined in the shadow. By a movement for which he could scarcely account to himself, the young Catalan placed his hand on the knife at his belt. Ah, your pardon, 
said Dante, frowning in his turn. I did not perceive that there were three of us. Then turning to Mercedes, he inquired, Who is this gentleman? One who will be your best friend, Dante, for he is my friend, my cousin, my brother. It is Fernand, the man whom after you, Edmond, I love the best in the world. Do you not remember him? Yes, said Dante, and without relinquishing Mercedes' hand, clasped in one of his own, he extended the other to the Catalan with a cordial air. But Fernand, instead of responding to this amiable gesture, remained mute and trembling. Edmond then cast his eyes scrutinizingly at the agitated and embarrassed Mercedes, and then again on the gloomy and menacing Fernand. This look told him all, and his anger waxed hot. I did not know, when I came with such haste to you, that I was to meet an enemy here. An enemy? cried Mercedes with an angry look at her cousin. An enemy in my house? Do you say, Edmond? If I believed that I would place my arm under yours and go with you to Marseille, leaving the house to return to it no more. Fernand's eye darted lightning. And should any misfortune occur to you, dear Edmond, she continued with the same calmness which proved to Fernand that the young girl had read the very innermost depths of his sinister thought. If misfortune should occur to you, I would ascend to the highest point of the Cap de Morgion and cast myself headlong from it. Fernand became deadly pale. But you are deceived, Edmond, she continued. You have no enemy here. There is no one but Fernand, my brother, who would grasp your hand as a devoted friend. And at these words the young girl fixed her imperious look on the Catalan, who, as if fascinated by it, came slowly towards Edmond and offered him his hand. His hatred, like a powerless, though furious wave, was broken against the strong ascendancy which Mercedes exercised over him. Scarcely, however, had he touched Edmund's hand than he felt he had done all he could do and rushed hastily out of the house. Oh, he exclaimed, running furiously and tearing his hair, oh, who will deliver me from this man? Wretched, wretched that I am! Hallo, Catalan! Hallo, Fernand! Where are you running to? exclaimed a voice. The young man stopped suddenly, looking around him, and perceived Caderousse sitting at table with Donglar under an arbor. Well, said Caderousse, why don't you come? Are you really in such a hurry that you have no time to pass the time of day with your friends? Particularly when they have still a full bottle before them, added Donglar. Fernand looked at them both, with a stupefied air, but did not say a word. "'He seems besotted,' said Donglar, pushing Caderousse with his knee. "'Are we mistaken? And is Dante a triomphant, in spite of all we have believed?' "'Why, we must inquire into that,' was Caderousse's reply, and turning towards the young man said, "'Well, Catalan, can't you make up your mind?' Fernand wiped away the perspiration steaming from his brow and slowly entered the arbour, whose shade seemed to restore somewhat of calmness to his senses and whose coolness somewhat of refreshment 
to his exhausted body. "'Good day,' said he. "'You called me, didn't you?' And he fell rather than sat down on one of the seats which surrounded the table. "'I called you because you were running like a madman, and I was afraid you would throw yourself into the sea.' said Carus, laughing. Why, when a man has friends, they are not only to offer him a glass of wine, but moreover to prevent his swallowing three or four pints of water unnecessarily. Fernand gave a groan, which resembled a sob, and dropped his head into his hands, his elbows leaning on the table. Well, Fernand, I must say, said Carus, beginning the conversation with that brutality of the common people, in which curiosity destroys all diplomacy. You look uncommonly like a rejected lover. Ha, 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 he burst into a hoarse laugh. Bah, said Danglars, a lad of his make was not born to be unhappy in love. You are laughing at him, Caderousse. No, he replied. Only hark how he sighs. Come, come, Fernand, said Caderousse. Hold up your head and answer us. It's not polite not to reply to friends who ask news of your health. My health is well enough, said Fernand, clinching his hands without raising his head. Ah, you see, Danglars, said Carlos, winking at his friend. This is how it is. A Fernand, whom you see here, is a good and brave Catalan, one of the best fishermen in Marseille, and he is in love with a very fine girl named Mercedes, but it appears, unfortunately, that the fine girl is in love with the mate of the pharaoh. And as the pharaoh arrived today, why, you understand. No, I do not understand, said Donglar. Poor Fernand has been dismissed, continued Calorus. Well, and what then, said Fernand, lifting up his head and looking at Caderousse like a man who looks for someone on whom to vent his anger. Mercedes is not accountable to any person, is she? Is she not free to love whomsoever she will? Oh, if you take it in that sense, said Caderousse, it is another thing, but I thought you were a Catalan, and they told me the Catalans were not men to allow themselves to be supplanted by a rival, it was even told me that Fernand especially was terrible in his vengeance. Fernand smiled piteously. A lover is never terrible, he said. Poor fellow, remarked Donglar, affecting to pity the young man from the bottom of his heart. Why, you see, he did not expect to see Dante return so suddenly. He thought he was dead. Perhaps, or perchance faithless, these things always come on us more severely when they come suddenly. Ah, ma foi, under any circumstance, said Caderousse, who drank as he spoke, and on whom the fumes of the wine began to take effect. Under any circumstance, Fernand is not only person but out by the unfortunate arrival of Dante. Is he, Donglar? No. You are right, and I should say that would bring him ill luck. Well, never mind, answered Caderousse, pouring out a glass of wine for Fernand and filling his own for the eighth or ninth time, while Danglars had merely sipped his. Never mind. In the meantime, 
He marries Mercedes. The lovely Mercedes. At least he returns to that. During this time, Donglar fixed his piercing glance on the young man, on whose heart Caderousse's words fell like molten lead. And when is the wedding to be? he asked. Oh, it is not yet fixed, murmured Fernand. No, but it will be, said Caderousse, as surely as the Dante will be captain of the Ferron. Eh, Danglars? Danglars shuddered at his unexpected attack and turned to Caderousse, whose countenance he scrutinized to try and detect whether the blow was premeditated. But he read nothing but envy in a countenance already rendered brutal and stupid by drunkenness. Well, said he, filling the glasses, let us drink to Captain Edmond de Dante, husband of the beautiful Catalan. Caderousse raised his glass to his mouth with unsteady hand and swallowed the contents at a gulp. Fernand dashed his on the ground. Eh, 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 hey, stammered Caderousse. What do I see down there by the wall in the direction of the Catalans? Look, Fernand, your eyes are better than mine. I believe I see double. You know, wine is a deceiver, but I would say it was two lovers walking side by side and hand in hand. Heaven forgive me, they do not know that we can see them, and they are actually embracing. Danglars did not lose one pang that Fernand endured. Do you know them, Fernand? he said. Yes, was the reply in a low voice. It is Edmond and Mercedes. Ah, see there now, said Caderousse, and I did not recognize them. Hello, Dante. Hello, lovely damselle. Come this way and let us know when the wedding is to be, for Fernand here is so obstinate he will not tell us. Hold your tongue, will you? said Danglars, pretending to restrain Caderousse, who with the tenacity of drunkards leaned out of the arbour. Try to stand upright and let the lovers make love without interruption. See, look at Fernand and follow his example. He is well behaved. Fernand, probably excited beyond bearing, pricked by Donglar as the bull is by the bandoleros, was about to rush out, for he had risen from his seat and seemed to be collecting himself to dash headlong upon his rival when Mercedes, smiling and graceful, lifted up her lovely head and looked at them with her clear and bright eyes. At this, Fernand recollected her threat of dying if Edmund died, and dropped again heavily on his seat. Danglars looked at the two men, one after the other, the one brutalized by liquor, the other overwhelmed with love. I shall get nothing from these fools, he muttered, and I'm very much afraid of being here between a drunkard and a coward. He is an envious fellow making himself boozy on wine when he ought to be nursing his wrath. And here is a fool who sees the woman he loves stolen from under his nose and takes on like a big baby. Yet this Catalan has eyes that glisten like those of the vengeful Spaniards, Sicilians and Calabrians.
and the other has fists big enough to crush an ox at one blow. Unquestionably, Edmund Starr is in the ascendant, and he will marry the splendid girl. He will be captain too, and laugh at us all. Unless... A sinister smile passed over Donglar's lips. Unless I take a hand in the affair, he added. Hello, continued Calarus, half rising, and with his fist on the table. Hello, Edmond. Do you not see your friends, or are you too proud to speak to them? No, my dear fellow, replied Dante. I am not proud, but I am happy, and happiness blinds, I think, more than pride. Ha! Very well. That's an explanation, said Calarus. How do you do, Madame Dante? Mercedes curtsied gravely and said, That is not my name, and in my country it bodes ill fortune, they say, to call a young girl by the name of a betrothed before he becomes her husband. So call me Mercedes, if you please. We must excuse our worthy neighbour, Cadorus, said Dante. He is so easily mistaken. So then, the wedding is to take place immediately, Monsieur Dante, said Donglar, bowing to the young couple. As soon as possible, Monsieur Donglar. Today all preliminaries will be arranged at my father's, and tomorrow or next day at latest, the wedding festival here at La Reserve. My friends will be there. I hope, that is to say, you are invited, Monsieur Donglar, and you, Cadarus. And Fernand? said Cadarus with a chuckle. <laughs> Fernand, he too is invited? My wife's brother is my brother, said Edmond. And we, Mercedes and I, should be very sorry if he were absent at such a time. Fernand opened his mouth to reply, but his voice died on his lips, and he could not utter a word. Today the preliminaries, tomorrow or next day the ceremony... You are in a hurry, Captain. Donglar, said Edmond, smiling. I will say to you as Mercedes said just now to Cadorus. Do not give me a title which does not belong to me. That may bring me bad luck. Your pardon, replied Donglar. I merely said you seemed in a hurry. And we have lots of time. The pharaoh cannot be under way again in less than three months. We are always in a hurry to be happy, Monsieur Donglar, for when we have suffered a long time, we have great difficulty in believing in good fortune. But it is not selfishness alone that makes me thus in haste. I must go to Paris. Ah, uh, really? To Paris? And will it be the first time you have ever been there, Dante? Yes. Have you business there? Not of my own. The last commission of poor Captain Leclerc, you know to what I allude, Donglar. It is sacred. Besides, I shall only take the time to go and return. Yes, yes, I understand, said Donglar. And then in a low tone he added, To Paris, no doubt to deliver the letter which the Grand Marshal gave him. Ah, this letter gives me an idea, a capital idea. Ah, Dante, my friend, you are not yet registered number one on board the good ship Ferroin. 
then turning toward Edmund, who was walking away. "'A pleasant journey,' he cried. "'Thank you,' said Edmund, with a friendly nod. And the two lovers continued on their way, as calm and joyous as if they were the very elect of heaven. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 Conspiracy Donglar followed Edmond and Mercedes with his eyes until the two lovers disappeared behind one of the angles of Fort Saint-Nicolas. Then turning around, he perceived Fernand, who had fallen pale and trembling into his chair, while Caderousse stammered out the words of a drinking song. "'Well, my dear sir,' said Donglar to Fernand, "'here is a marriage which does not appear to make everybody happy.' "'It drives me to despair,' said Fernand. "'Do you love Mercedes?' "'I adore her. "'For long?' "'As long as I ever known her, always.' "'And you sit there, tearing your hair, "'instead of seeking to remedy your condition? "'I did not think that was the way of your people.' "'What would you have me do?' said Fernand. "'How do I know?' Is it my affair? I am not in love with Mademoiselle Mercedes. But for you, in the words of the gospel, seek and you shall find. I have found already. What? I would stab the man, but the woman told me that if any misfortune happened to her betrothed, she would kill herself. Pooh! Women say those things. But never do them. You do not know, Mercedes, what she threatens she would do. Idiot, muttered Donglar, whether she kill herself or not, what matter, provided Dante is not captain. Before Mercedes should die, replied Fernand, with the accents of unshaken resolution, I would die myself. "'That's what I call love,' said Caderousse, with a voice more tipsy than ever. "'That's love, or I don't know what love is.' "'Come,' said Donglar, "'you appear to me a good sort of fellow, and hang me, I should like to help you, but—' "'Yes,' said Caderousse, "'but how?' "'My dear fellow,' replied Donglar, you are three parts drunk. Finish the bottle, and you will be completely so. Drink, then, and do not meddle with what we are discussing, for that requires all one's wit and cool judgment. I? Drunk? said Caderousse. Well, that's a good one. I could drink four more such bottles. They are no bigger than cologne flasks. Pertonville, more wine. And Caderousse rattled his glass upon the table. You were saying, sir, said Fernand, awaiting with great anxiety the end of this interrupted remark. What was I saying? I forget. This drunken Caderousse has made me lose the thread of my sentence. Drunk, if you like... So much the worse for those who fear wine. 
for it is because they have bad thoughts which they are afraid the liquor will extract from their hearts. And Calarus began to sing the two last lines of a song very popular at that time. Tous les méchants sont beveux d'eau, si bien prouve par la déluge. The wicked are great drinkers of water, as the flood proved once for all. You said, sir, you would like it to help me, but... Yes, but I added, to help you it would be sufficient that Dante did not marry her your love, and the marriage may easily be thwarted, methinks, and yet Dante need not die. Death alone can separate them, remarked Fernand. You talk like a noodle, my friend, said Caderousse, and here is Donglar, who is wide awake, clever, deep fellow, who will prove to you that you are wrong. Prove it, Donglar. I have answered for you. Say there is no need why Dante should die. It would indeed be a pity he should. Dante is a good fellow. I like Dante. Dante, your health. Fernand rose impatiently. Let him run on, said Donglar, restraining the young man. Drunk as he is, he is not much out in what he says. Absence severs as well as death. And if the walls of a prison were between Edmond and Mercedes, they would be as effectually separated as if he lay under a tombstone. Yes, but one gets out of prison, said Caderousse, who with what sense was left him, listened eagerly to the conversation. And when one gets out, and one's name is Edmond Dante, one seeks revenge. What matters that? muttered Fernand. And why, I should like to know, persisted Caderousse, should they put Dante in prison? He is not robbed or killed or murdered. Hold your tongue, said Donglar. I won't hold my tongue, replied Caderousse. I say, I want to know why they should put Dante in prison. I like Dante. Dante, your health. And he swallowed another glass of wine. Donglar saw in the muddled look of the tailor the progress of his intoxication and turning towards Fernand said, Well, you understand there is no need to kill him. Certainly not, if, as you said just now, you have the means of having Dante arrested. Have you that means? It is to be found for the searching. But why should I meddle in the matter? It is no affair of mine. I know not why you meddle said Fernand, seizing his arm. But this I know. You have some motive of personal hatred against Dante, for he himself hates is never mistaken in the sentiments of others. I? 
motives of hatred against Dante? None, my word. I saw you were unhappy, and your unhappiness interested me. That's all. But since you believe I act for my own account, adieu, my dear friend, get out of the affair as best you may. And Danglars rose, as if he meant to depart. No, no, said Fernand, restraining him. Stay, it is of very little consequence to me, at the end of the matter, whether you have any angry feeling or not against Dante. I hate him. I confess it openly. Do you find the means? I will execute it, provided it is not to kill the man. For Mercedes has declared she will kill herself if Dante is killed. Caderousse, who had let his head drop on the table, now raised it, and looked at Fernand with his dull and fishy eyes. He said, Kill Dante? Who talks of killing Dante? I won't have him killed. I won't. He's my friend. At this morning, offered to share his money with me, as I shared mine with him. I won't have Dante killed. I won't. And who has said a word about killing him, Madeleine? replied Danglars. We were merely joking. Drink to his health, he added, filling Caderousse's glass. And do not interfere with us. Yes, yes, Dante, good health, said Caderousse, emptying his glass. Here's to his health, his health, hurrah! But the means, the means, said Fernand. Have you not hit upon any? asked Danglars. No, you undertook to do so. True, replied Danglars. The French have the superiority over the Spaniards, that the Spaniards ruminate while the French invent. Do you invent then? said Fernand impatiently. A waiter, said Danglars. A pen, ink, and paper. Pen, ink, and paper, muttered Fernand. Yes, I am a supercargo. Pen, ink, and paper are my tools. And without my tools, I am fit for nothing. Pen, ink, and paper, then, called Fernand loudly. There's what you want on that table, said the waiter. Bring them here. The waiter did as he was desired. When one thinks, said Caderousse, letting his hand drop on the paper, there is the wherewithal to kill a man more sure than if we waited at the corner of a wood to assassinate him. I've always had more dread of a pen, a bottle of ink, and a sheet of paper than a sword or pistol. The fellow is not so drunk as he appears to be, said Danglars. Give him some more wine, Fernand. Fernand filled Caderousse's glass, who, like the confirmed toper he was, lifted his hand from the paper and seized the glass. The Catalan watched him until Caderousse, almost overcome by this fresh assault on his senses, rested, or rather dropped his glass, upon the table. Well, 
assumed the Catalan as he saw the final glimmer of Caderousse's reason vanishing before the last glass of wine. "'Well, then, I should say, for instance,' resumed Anglard, "'that if after a voyage such as Dante has just made, "'in which he touched at the island of Elba, "'someone were to denounce him to the king's procureur "'as a Bonapartist agent?' "'I will denounce him!' exclaimed the young man hastily. "'Yes, but they will make you then sign your declaration "'and confront you with him you, you have denounced. "'I will supply you with the means of supporting your accusation, "'for I know the fact well. "'But Dante cannot remain forever in prison, "'and one day or other he will leave it.' And the day when he comes out, a woe betide him who was the cause of his incarceration. Oh, I should wish nothing better than that he would come and seek a quarrel with me. Yes, and Mercedes? Mercedes who will detest you if you have only the misfortune to scratch the skin of her dearly beloved Edmond? True, said Fernand. No, no continued Danglars, if we resolve on such a step, it would be much better to take, as I now do, this pen, dip it into this ink, and write with the left hand, that the writing may not be recognized, the denunciation we propose. And Danglars, uniting practice with theory, wrote with his left hand, and in a writing reversed from his usual style, and totally unlike it, the following lines which he handed to Fernand, and which Fernand read in an undertone. The Honourable, the King's Attorney, is informed by a friend of the throne and religion that one Edmond Dante, mate of the ship of Heroin, arrived this morning from Smyrna, after having touched at Naples and Porto Ferraio, has been entrusted by Murat with a letter for the usurper, and by the usurper with a letter for the Bonapartist committee in Paris. Proof of this crime will be found on arresting him, for the letter will be found upon him, or at his father's, or in his cabin on board the Pharaon. Very good, resumed Anglard. Now your revenge looks like common sense, for in no way can it revert to yourself, and the matter will thus work its own way. There is nothing to do now but fold the letter, as I am doing, and write upon it. To the king's attorney, and that's all settled. And Danglars wrote the address as he spoke. Yes, and that's all settled, exclaimed Caderousse, who by a last effort of intellect had followed the reading of the letter, and instinctively comprehended all the misery which such a denunciation must entail. Yes, and that's all settled, only it will be an infamous shame. And he stretched out his hand to reach the letter. Yes, said Danglars, taking it from beyond his reach, and as what I say and do is merely in jest, and I amongst the first and foremost should be sorry if anything happened to Dante, the worthy Dante. Look here. 
and taking the letter, he squeezed it up in his hands and threw it into a corner of the arbor. All right, said Caderousse. Dante is my friend, and I won't have him ill-used. And who thinks of using him ill? Certainly neither I nor Fernand, said Donglar, rising and looking at the young man, who still remained seated, but whose eye was fixed on a denunciatory sheet of paper flung into the corner. In this case, replied Caderousse, Let's have some more wine. I wish to drink to the health of Edmund and the lovely Mercedes. You have had too much already, drunkard, said Donglard. And if you continue, you will be compelled to sleep here, because unable to stand on your legs. I, said Caderousse, rising with all the offended dignity of a drunken man, I can't keep on my legs. Why, I'll wager I can go up into the belfry of the Akul, and without a staggering, too. Done, said Donglar. I'll take your bet, but tomorrow. Today it is time to return. Give me your arm and let us go. Very well, let us go, said Caderousse. But I don't want your arm at all. Come, Fernand, won't you return to Marseille with us? No, said Fernand. I shall return to the Catalans. You're wrong. Come with us to Marseille. Come along. I will not. What do you mean? You will not. Well, just as you like, my prince... There's a liberty for all the world. Come along, Donglar, and let the young gentleman return to Catalans if he chooses. Donglar took advantage of Caderousse's temper at the moment to take him off towards Marseille by the Port Saint-Victor, staggering as he went. When they advanced about twenty yards, Donglar looked back and saw Fernand stoop pick up the crumpled paper, and putting it into his pocket, then rush out of the arbor towards Pion. Well, said Caderousse, why, what a lie he told. He said he was going to the Catalans, and he is going to the city. Hello, Fernand. Oh, you don't see straight, said Donglar. He's gone right enough. Well, said Caderousse. I should have said not. How treacherous wine is. Come, come, said Donglar to himself. Now the work is at work, and it will effect its purpose unassisted. End of chapter four. So Donglar is a poop. That is what I have decided. Now it's going to be, instead of Newman, you know, from the Seinfeld show, Newman, now it's going to be Danglar, and also Jacques, but that's a different story. So we have Danglar, we have Caderousse, and we have Fernand. And these three are are, are our evil triad. 
They are our axis of evil. (laughs) And if that wasn't clear to you at the beginning of today's chapters, I hope it is clear to you now. The interesting thing is that they are all so differently motivated. And this becomes a real important part of the second half-ish of the story. And Fernand, before we before we move away from him, did you get the same impression that I did that this is one of those guys who you just kind of want to shake by the shoulders and say, dude, no means no. Back off. Because, boy, he was driving me crazy. The way he, he wasn't listening to Mercedes. He wasn't valuing her own thoughts. Oh, but he's in love with her. Right. So, I don't know about you, but he was driving me up the wall. But he also reminded me of a song, a folk song called John Riley. And I found a version of it, which I will play you out with on today's episode. But the the things that happen in the song sounded an awful lot like what Fernand was saying to Mercedes. So <laughs> you can see what you think after you listen to the song. See if, see if you agree. You may not. And if you don't, Call our call-in line, 1-206-350-1642, and speak your mind so I can share what you have to say with everybody else, because that's cool. So that's Fernand for us today. And then there's Mercedes, who she is described, correct me if I'm wrong, but she's described as looking quite a bit like Edmond Dantes is described as looking black hair, dark eyes, the whole thing. And it made me think, I wonder if this is a Dumas thing. Dumas who has black hair and dark eyes. And maybe, unlike the stereotypical uh, Cinderella picture of the blonde with the blue eyes, Disney girl thing, maybe this is just his definition of beauty. So at this stage in the narrative, we don't really know why these three guys are talking to each other. We don't know if Danglar knows Caderousse from before or if he's just buying this guy wine to pump him for information on Dante's. We have no idea. And it doesn't really matter yet. What does matter is that we get to watch their actions and their their reactions to each other, this, this axis of evil. Right now, Caterus is just getting drunk. And the drunker he gets, did you notice the nicer he gets about Edmond? That's kind of interesting because we know what he did to Edmond's dad. So, hmm, don't know what that means about Caterus yet. Fernand is just, what is he? He's just impotent. He is angry. He doesn't do anything. He has no agency. He doesn't, he's not a man of action which is very strange because that's kind of how he seems to think of himself, kind of, when he's talking to Mercedes. He's an interesting character, too. But then we have Danglar, and Danglar is totally our Iago, right? You can see that just laid out in front of you. In fact, Tara Worcester called and had this to say. From the moment Danglar set foot on the page, I did the whole squinty eyes sleaze ball. Throw him overboard now, overboard. 
way to go. You're going to ruin the whole story. And then, oh, and then it's the sleazeball neighbor. What a punk. What a piece of work. He can go too. Shoo, shoo, away. Read a perfectly good story about a good boy who loves his dad and his girlfriend and wants to be happy and happy. Those two better give us some serious shenanigans or I'm not even, I won't even be able to even. All in all, honestly, it sounds like it's going to be a very interesting story with a lot of throwing of things across the room going, I can't believe it. I can't even. And I can't wait. Thanks for a great chapter, Heather. I am so glad you're back. So it's true. He is. He is just he is just this guy. He's he doesn't have a whole lot of motive as far as we can tell, unless it's what Dantes said that they got in an argument and and Edmund basically said the all right, you want to take this outside? And they happen to be by the Isle of Monte Cristo. And Danglar backs down, which means he's humiliated in front of the crew. But is that really enough to try and frame somebody for something that they didn't do? I mean, I, I guess the answer is yes, because that seems to be what he's doing. But just like we had the, the stereotype of the Catalan community, we kind of have a stereotype of the money guy now, that he's going to be a little wimpy, he's not going to be as, as buff as or as proactive as Dantes, as the, the sailor man. And I can't help but wonder if at this point Dumas is using these broad strokes with these uh, stereotypes in order to get people hooked quickly, you know, dive, dive into the action, get to the good stuff soon because he's writing it like a serial and it's only going to work if he gets people hooked. So I, I, I think that's why he does this in the beginning because I don't think the people stay quite so two-dimensional throughout the rest of the book. But we'll have a chance to talk about that more as we go along because we have plenty of book to go along through together. But this part, this part about the plot, about the letter that Danglar has written with his left hand to disguise his handwriting, this is one of the reasons why we did episode 402, the part where I front-loaded a lot of French history and, and dumped it all on you, was because these kinds of things are going to happen over and over throughout the book, and it really helps to place yourself in time and space and history to to get it quickly. Just to reiterate, in case you missed 402, or in case your eyes rolled back in your head during 402 and you found yourself incapable of remembering any of it, we are in the middle of Napoleon's first exile. So they've had the disastrous battle in Russia where, I, I don't know if you know the history of it, it's, it's kind of fascinating because as the French marched into Russia, the Russians massive army wouldn't fight they kept running backwards closer and closer to moscow they started this in september which should have been fine but in the time that it takes to march all that distance they wound up realizing that they had to turn around or they were going to get smacked in the face with a russian winter now, the Muscovites did something else at the same time. They evacuated Moscow, and as they went, they burnt everything. So there were no supplies that the invading army could access. 
There was nothing they couldn't steal. They would have looted and stolen, except there was nothing to loot or steal. I think I read that the campaign started with 600,000 Frenchmen and 100,000 made it home out of Russia. And that's why he gets exiled. So he's been out of the country on the Isle of Elba for not even a year when our story starts. Napoleon wasn't royal, so he is not royalty. He was very good for the middle class and the people loved him, but that means that the royalists and the wealthy people were not happy with Napoleon. So once he's out of the way, they can bring things back to business as usual, they think. During that time, the middle class folks are doing what they can to get Napoleon back. And we don't really know which way Danglar leans politically. We don't know if he's a Bonapartist or a royalist. My guess is that he goes with whichever side is winning. Perhaps he'll take his bearings and go whither the wind blows him, to get nautical about it for a moment. Either way, he seems to be a completely opportunistic bad guy. And smart. So we, we see him write that letter. He's writing it with his left hand. Smart. He crumples it up, laughs it off, tosses it in the corner. Smart, because he knows Fernand is watching him every second. And one of the things he wrote in that letter was that the, the letter that Dantes is going to get caught with came from Murat. This was Joaquin Murat, who was one of Napoleon's marshals. And he was over in, well, he, he was either in Naples or Smyrna. He gave a letter to Captain Leclerc. That was the letter that Leclerc, the original captain, as he was dying, entrusted to Edmond. Edmond then gets another letter that he's supposed to deliver to someone in Paris. So there have been actually two letters that have exchanged hands so far that, that matter. But Danglars' letter is really brilliant because it's, it gives enough information to damn whoever it's accusing, in this case Edmond Dantes, but it doesn't give so much information that you could trace it back to someone. And in, in fact, it kind of doesn't matter at this point. He could, he could have said it was a letter from Napoleon, although people probably would have thought he was a crackpot or that the, the letter was a fake. But by not really detailing any more than that, he makes it very, very plausible that the gendarmes will come and visit Dantes just to search these three locations. His room on the ship, his dad's place, or on his own person, carrying the letter in a pocket. And I love it when writers from this long ago get psychology so right, because Dunklar is treating Fernand like, uh, like a teenager. You know, it's very much that, oh, you don't, you wouldn't want this. No, this is silly. Here, I'm just, I'm just going to throw this away now. And you leave the room. Well, there he goes. Fernand picks it up and runs off, and runs off on the way to the procureur's office. Now, the procureur du roi, this is the, the procureur of the king. He's kind of like a district attorney in the United States or a state prosecutor in the UK or Canada or Australia. I'm not sure what that position would be elsewhere. But he, he runs off with the letter basically to the guy who could, take a, who could start a case against Edmund. He doesn't go to the police. This has to be more important, and that's what Danglar put on the outside of the envelope, because Danglar's no dummy. Now, 
I'm going to play a little bit of uh, voicemail from Gabrielle because what her friend had to say about this book, I think, is both interesting and important right about now. So here's a little clip from Gabby's voicemail. So I did follow up with my French counterpart in a bilingual school. I have a French counterpart who teaches French every day. I asked him about it, and he didn't quite laugh, but he almost laughed when I said, do you teach Dumas? And he said, no. And I said, not kind of Monte Cristo. And he said, no, that he got to college. He said, and I realized I had never read it, but I read it in college and he said, it was fun and I enjoyed it, but I wouldn't teach it. And I said, why wouldn't you teach it? And he said, you know, it's really just too much of an adventure and it's not enough there. And he said, and it's a little like Baudelaire where, you know, he's being paid by the word. And I said, oh, like Dickens and doing the chapter a week. And he said, yeah. So then it's just a lot of words. I think the sense I got was, I think it's a little bit like the consideration of Dickens for some people that there's not very much respect for that kind of writing because it was maybe more hackneyed or hack writing than artistic writing. He said he didn't know anybody that had ever read it in school, and he didn't know anybody that was teaching it in school. So I thought that I was, that was interesting, but it does not seem to be widely read as a teaching text, which, you know, sometimes that's true. Like, there are books that are really great fun to read, but teaching them doesn't work as well. Like, you want to teach them, but there's just not enough there in terms of writing craft or connections to events or development of characters or something. Like, there's just not something enough there to make it teachable. Thematically, I suppose that I think, and we talked about this, right? Thematically, Count of Monte Cristo would be incredibly fun to teach because you would have the issues and the questions about revenge versus redemption, forgiveness, uh, or revenge versus forgiveness, I guess, and then redemption, you know, the way that things pan out for the characters towards the end, which I won't say here, is all interesting. So I thought his point was really well taken in some ways, because this is why I didn't pick The Three Musketeers. The Three Musketeers is really just rollicking good fun. But knowing how many of the books that we've already done on Craftlet really deal with redemption and justice, this book is all about that. And the final words of this book, I think, are not ones to be taken lightly or ignored. I, I really do think that this book transcends its own genre in lots of ways. And I also think that for, for me, somebody who doesn't live in France, didn't grow up learning French history, and hasn't been yet, this October, but not yet, I think that it's a really, it's a neat way to learn some history and to, to see a story unfold in a way that is not Brit-lit, and it's not American-lit. It's very much its own thing. And I, I appreciate having the opportunity to do that. So I hope you don't think it's too lightweight. I'm sure having fun with it. Ooh, and on the subject of voicemails, I got a ton of voicemail that didn't get delivered properly. And all of a sudden, I wound up with like nine of them. So people sent voicemails during the hiatus. And thank you, because some of them were just personal and to me. There were also some voicemails, actually quite a few voicemails, about Sense and Sensibility with some really, really excellent comments. So what I'm doing is I'm creating a little B-roll, and I'm going to release it after 
401. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to change the release date on it so that it shows up in the lineup as 401B. And it'll just be a short little nothing episode. It's not even an episode episode. It'll just be me introducing voicemails and that's pretty much it. But I thought you might like to have an opportunity to hear the really smart things that your compatriots were saying. And as we're winding down, I also wanted to take a moment to thank all of Craftlet's patrons directly for their support. And I particularly wanted to thank our listeners in Canada. I stumbled on this website. I had no idea this website existed. But evidently, January 23rd, Craftlit hit the number 12 spot for podcasts in general in Canada. The number one position was This American Life. So I'm overwhelmed, thrilled, excited, uh, just completely gobsmacked. Thank you. Thank you so much for spreading the word about Craftlit Podcast. And now our patrons, starting at the very beginning and reading through to the most recent, these are the people who have kept the podcast free for everyone. Lisa B., Jennifer L., Harriet D., Ellie, Sarah B., Angela S., Kathy S., Juliana, Kimberly K., Liz W., Lisa B., Diane W., Carlene S., Gloria S., Debbie, Suki B., Sam, John C. E., Barbara H., Karen W., Melissa W. D., Kathleen R., Jamie T., Terry, Sharon B. K., Toshi H., Kirsten, Renee R., Judy S., Allison H., Kitty F., Larry F., Maya D., Tassie Tinker, Jean G., Robert, Sydney H. M., Amanda L., V. B., Julia T., A. T. B., Barbara A., Tracy L., Adita N., Michelle C., Kathy, Leanna B., Kathleen B. B., Marcy G. T. Kim Z. Shelley A. Camilla O. Tanya B. Sharon S. Misty H. Betty F. Lorna A. Julie M. Phyllis K. Cheryl Ann S. Catherine S. Linda R. Sandra Z, Marta P, Barbara E, Monique R, Emily S, Trish T, Fibertarian, Concepcion L, Christine M, Joanne B, Susan B, Sharon A, Terry J R, Slanted Stitches, Sarah Beth S. Galene C. Donna W. Annie H. Patricia C. Lisa P. Tehran C. Shahara B. C. Nakazawa.
Susan S. Suzanne D. Judith G. Keisha E. Claire W. Amy W. Nicole S. Satu M. Amy B. Liz. Verna G. Roz O. Jody M. Charlotte D. Amanda B. Gail B. And Robin Adams. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. It means the world to me. I know it means the world to listeners who can't afford to pledge. Thank you. Oh, and I have some happy good news that I know those of you who listen towards the end of Sense and Sensibility will be thrilled to hear about. Penny, who called and wrote in several times, who needed to get the guide dog and started a GoFundMe for it, she's getting her dog very soon. And thank you. All right. Have a great one. I'll talk to you soon. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet. There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlet.libsyn.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlet.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Craftlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on 